Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. I'd like to invite you to turn with me this morning for our sermon, our study of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And we're going to be looking at verses 26 to 40, finishing up this, the rest of this chapter. Francis Schaeffer is a name you may be familiar with. He wrote a, uh, he has a well-known resource called No Little People, and it's a, it's a collection of about mm, maybe 15 or 16 sermons um, on the topic of, uh, you know, humility and the way of the cross and things like that. But there's a sermon in that book, or booklet, I guess, it's called The Lord's Work, the Lord's Work in the Lord's Way. It's a it's a fascinating little sermon. I'd encourage you to look it up and, and read it when you have a chance. But Schaefer points out in that sermon uh, that the large part, in large part, the reason we know so little of the power of God in our churches and in our individual lives is because far too often we're trying to do um, the Lord's work in our own way. We're trying to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh. If you want the glory of God to shine forth, in a dark and dying world, if you want the joy and the peace of Christ to um, fill your hearts and, and to warm the fellowship of the church, and, and if you want the gospel message to go out with impact, and I know that you do, um, to draw sinners to the Savior, then we must go about the Lord's work. His point is, we must go about the Lord's work in the Lord's way. That's vital. And I have to believe that the Corinthians wanted in their heart of hearts the glory of God to shine. They wanted to know the joy and, and the peace of Christ in, in, their, in their midst. And they had, I think every indication as you read through this letter is that they wanted the lost to hear the gospel and to come to faith in Christ. But, but the problem was, and this is what we keep coming at again and again, they were coming at the Lord's work in their own way, in their own wisdom. And Paul's words in chapter 14 are meant to correct and to educate us how to go about the Lord's work in the Lord's way. I mean, that's really what's going on here. And we said that verses 20 to 40, which we looked at last week and again and now this week, in verses 20 to 25, there was kind of two lessons. The first lesson that we learned last week is, is the priority of the prophetic word. That if we're going to go about the Lord's work in the Lord's way, we have to prioritize the Word of God. And as we get into our text this morning now in verses 26 to 40, Paul is going to reinforce a procedure for worship to aid us in the task of achieving that goal. Um, we, we cannot get to where we need to be apart from uh, doing that in the Lord's way. And so um, I just want to read the verses verses 26 to 40 this morning, and then we'll break the text down into kind of four, four sections. Paul says this in, um, in verse 26. He says, What then, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. He says, Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at most the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there's no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. 
For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God went first went the, the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues. But all things must be done properly and in order. As we come to, uh, as we think about this morning, all that's in here, we're continuing our education in edification. That's a mouthful. And our education in edification. And lesson two, which we've talked about just a moment ago, is zeroes in here in 26 to 40 on a procedure for worship. This is as granular as it can get for Paul. He's telling them exactly what they should and should not do. And as we begin in verses 26 to 31, the first part of our outline this morning, we're going to see the guidelines for the proclamation of, of the word. And as we think about all of this, there's a you know, one of the main takeaways is, um, as you look at these, this section, is that the structure of the church gathering isn't some kind of a blank canvas that we get to fill in however we want. Um, we have to understand that. We don't get to do whatever we want, however we want, in the church service, which is unfortunately how some pastors think about corporate worship. They think about it in terms of sort of whatever they want to do. If you want drama, you know, we can have skits. If you want to have interpretive dance, we can, we can work in a creative number. If you want to have um, a movie, want to show movie clips, we can, we, can, uh, we can show you scenes from contemporary films, right? The, the church doesn't the problem is the church doesn't have the creative license to do that. Um, we, we cannot do whatever we want, however we want. There are actual clear priorities in the Word of God that we should, the things that we should and should not do, things that we have, um, we can do, and things that we cannot do. And the pri- those priorities are laid out in the Scriptures. The, the New Testament regulates that for us, and um, and the Word. The Greek word that's translated church in the New Testament primarily speaks of an assembly of those who profess faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ. That's what a church is. As such, then, the Lord's Day is primarily a time set apart for for Christians, for believers. Um, The the, the worship service is not meant to um, cater to or to um, draw in unbelievers or the quote-unquote unchurched. That's not our goal. Um, and we're gathered together to uh, build one another up, to encourage each other in our like precious faith, and to worship the Lord. And, and so um, we understand, of course, there will always be people in our midst who don't know Christ, and that's wonderful. We, we love to be able to, to welcome them, and we, they should be welcomed with all the love of Christ, and, and they should be ministered to sacrificially. But as you look across the New Testament, the, the corporate worship service itself has core elements that are a part of it, 
And there are things, and beyond that, those things should, you know, those things are not part of the service. And they're really, I guess you could break it down into seven kind of core elements. And this is kind of just an overview. You know, what, what is it that the New Testament says should be happening, can happen in the corporate worship service? Well, you can break it down into kind of six uh, core elements. The first, and I'm just going to go through these somewhat rapid fire, is prayer. Prayer is a, is a major component of our corporate worship. Acts 2 verse 42 says they were continually devoting themselves to prayer when they would come together and to the apostles' teaching and so forth into fellowship and the breaking of bread. So uh, prayer is an, an, a vital component of our worship services. Uh, worship through music, Ephesians 5 and verse 19 you know, that we are to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms, uh, songs, excuse me, and to um, make melody in our hearts to the Lord. We do that when we come together. So the ministry of music is a vital part of the worship service. Uh, the scripture makes clear in, in later on in 1 Corinthians 16 that our giving is a part of our worship. Um, our regular, Paul says in chapter 16 and verse 1 that uh, and 2, that um, they are to set something aside at the beginning of every part of the week as the Lord prospers them so that, you know, we would have a provision and all is needed for the ministry of the, of the local church and even to the ministry uh, alleviating the suffering and the hardship of, of others. So, you know, our giving is a... Is a, is a and that's why we, you know, some churches do this differently, but we actually take an offering in the service, and that's intentional. We don't just have a box in the back. I'm not saying that's wrong. But it's our conviction that this is an act of worship. It should be something that's somewhat active and engaged in, not, not something that's sort of like passive and you just sort of like do it on the way out. Uh, then, of course, the, the fourth kind of core element of the worship service is the ministry of the Word of God. And that has a lot of, it takes a lot of different forms, but uh, we read the Word of God, right? First Timothy, Paul says, you know, to be faithful to uh, read the scriptures in the worship service. We preach and teach the scriptures, obviously, and we've talked about the priority of that already in chapter 14. Even things like uh, catechizing, uh, teaching kind of systematically the core elements of our faith, well, you know, we can do that through um, uh, confession, re re reciting creeds, and and those kinds of things. Those are vital parts of the worship. Those can be vital parts of the worship service as the ministry of the Word of God. Uh, a fifth element that is um, not always the part of a worship service, but is really meant to be done as a corporate body, is is the uh, baptism. Baptism is the church saying this one belongs to Jesus Christ, and uh, and that person giving a public testimony of their faith and trust in Christ. And of course, what we're going to participate in together in just a few moments at the conclusion of our sermon, which is the Lord's table. That's the sixth element of, uh, core element of the worship service. So, so prayer, the ministry of the word, uh, ministry of, through music, uh, offering, the ministry of the word of God, and that can take many forms, baptism, and the Lord's table. Those are the core elements of the worship service. All the other stuff is, um, is, really gravy, and, and really that's the limit of what we should be doing in the service. It should be something like that. Now, exactly how that's going to work itself out and how that's carried out uh, in our churches is going to have a measure of flexibility. It will look different depending on which church you're at. It'll look different depending on what um, doctrinal you know, tradition you're a part of, but, but the core elements the, uh, that we just went through, those are the boundaries that they hem in what we can do in the corporate 
worship service. And, you know, for us this morning, Paul is zeroing in on the ministry of the Word of God, and he's giving us guidelines for the ministry of the Word. And that's what we want to look at here. So the first part of our outline in verses 26 to 31 is focused on proclamation. All these start with the letter P this morning, but the, the first part of our outline is in 26 to 31 is proclamation. He is giving us guidelines for the ministry of the word, first in, as it relates to tongues, which is what they needed instruction on, and then secondly, within that heading, the, the ministry of the word of prophecy. But the ministry of the Word of God at that time centered around the Old Testament scriptures, right? First Corinthians is one of the earliest books, um, so most of the New Testament had not been written at this point. So when they came together, it was the Old Testament scriptures and the miraculous gifts of prophecy and words of revelation and, to a lesser degree, tongues and interpretation. Those were the things that where the Word of God, God's Word, was being kind of brought forward in the worship service. And in the absence of a, of a New Testament canon, the early churches relied heavily on these revelatory gifts to know God's will for his church, to, to uh, be able to build up the body when they came together. Now, you and I, we have the scriptures. We have the prophetic word made more sure. And so we are able to lean into that, and that is what anchors our, our worship services um, together. But they didn't have that. They didn't have that privilege. And so we are, you know, they were dependent on these gifted individuals, prophets, apostles as they wrote to them and interacted with the churches, as well as these individuals who had the gift of prophecy and, um, and words of knowledge and things like that. Uh, the problem was for Corinth is when they came together, it became something of a free-for-all. So when they would come together, uh, they were basically doing whatever they wanted. And uh, there was no interest in serving one another. There was no interest in, uh, in you know, putting others first. They were, they were interested in self-promotion. They weren't interested in edifying others, but in exalting themselves and it became chaotic. It became disordered in a, in a profound way. And so, um, and as, of course, as we saw back in chapter 11, there was all this d- division and chaos surrounding the Lord's table. As we look at this section this morning, as we read through it, I'm sure you're picked up that there was obviously chaos and disorder surrounding other aspects of the worship service as well. Everyone was clamoring for attention and jockeying for those places of preeminence. And so he says in verse 26, what then? When you assemble, everyone has a psalm and has a teaching and has a revelation and has a tongue and has an interpretation, right? So everyone's coming together and everyone's vying for one another's attention. And ultimately, there were very few people left to actually receive the benefits of those things. No one was actually being built up in that situation, Maybe they had a few seekers, maybe they had a few unbelievers, but with all the chaos and with all of the confusion, they likely thought the Christians, these, these visitors, these guests, probably thought these Christians were, were lunatics. We saw that back in verse 23. He says, they, they will say that you were mad. And, um, and so Paul gives, lays out some guidelines then. In, in the midst of that, verse 26 is kind of teeing up what he's going to say in, in the verses that follow, but he's going to give us um, some direction, some guidelines for tongues and interpretation as well as for prophecy. But the orienting principle of the whole thing is at the end of verse 26. Let all things, he says, be done for edification. Let all things be done for building up, for, for strengthening and to, 
uh, bringing others to maturity, from helping them move from where they are in Christ to where they need to be in Christ. This is, this is what every dimension of the worship service is meant to press into. Imagine, and I just think that imagine what our churches would be like if that was the predominating influence that oriented the leaders and the people in these churches in their worship services, that all would be done for edification. But I think too often the principle that orients the broader kind of evangelical world we live in is let all things be done for entertainment or let all things be done for expediency, like what's most convenient, or let all things be done for expansion, you know, and and, and growth, numerical growth or whatever kind of whatever expansion looks like for them. But the primary goal of our corporate gathering and our primary responsibility to each other is edification, building one another up into the things of Christ. This is our responsibility as leaders, for sure. Like, we bear this responsibility first and foremost, but everyone's responsibility is the building up of the body. You look across the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, uh, verse 1, Therefore, Paul says, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. This is a mature church, Thessalonica was. He says, this is what you need to be doing, building each other up. Or Romans 15 and verses 2 and 3, Paul says, each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification, for even Christ did not please himself. So we're to follow in the footsteps of our Lord and not to um, neglect this, this task of building each other up. Mark 10, verse 45, of course, Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The, the heart of, heartbeat of a, of a healthy church is one of sacrificial service for the building up of the body. All is done for edification. But loveless immaturity looks to the local assembly and asks, How is this church benefiting me? That's what they think when they come into a church. How is this church benefiting me? But a loving Christian maturity looks at the local assembly and asks the exact opposite. How am I benefiting this church? That's the question that we ought to be asking ourselves as we come to the local church. And and hand in glove with building others up, Romans 14 verse 19 says, is the pursuing of that which makes for peace. And that is the heartbeat of what he's going to get into here. The things which promote harmony and, not, and, and steer away from discord and, and chaos. And so Paul lays out some very practical guidelines for tongues and for prophecy. And there's some um, principles here that we can kind of extract in terms of just attitudes and actions. But, but there's four, kind of four guidelines for tongues and interpretation in verses 27 and 28, and he gives three more guidelines for prophecy in verses 29 to 31. I'm going to move through these rather quickly. If you look at verse 27, he says, If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at most three. So the criteria that he lays out here, the the very first guideline is that no more than two or three persons would speak in a tongue, and ideally, no more than two. Because the way he says that is like two, and at the most, if you absolutely have to, three. So um, Paul, is, of course, is not giving instructions about any kind of counterfeit gift. He's talking about the genuine gift of languages here. He's giving them parameters for 
how they are to exercise that gift in the corporate gathering. And he says, if someone truly wants to contribute to the worship service by speaking in a, in a foreign language they didn't know and hadn't studied as a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, Paul says that wasn't something everybody should be doing. It is only at most two, two or at most three. It wasn't something that should consume the entire worship service, which apparently it was in Corinth. And, and so he says it should be two people at most three. So the first criteria is just the putting boundaries on how many people would actually do that. The second is that they must do so one at a time. If you look at the end of verse 27, and each in turn. So orderliness, harmony, intelligibility, and a general respect one for another were essential for others to be built up. There had to be some order to the service. I remember one summer I was a camp counselor. I think it was my freshman year in college. I was a camp counselor at Parks and Rec in, uh, in, when I lived in Florida. And I had uh, a group of fourth and fifth grade boys. That was my little cohort of, of children that I had to responsible for. And when they would get going on an activity some kind of like a, a basketball game or some dodgeball or something like that, when it, it would, they would get so hyped up that they would literally be talking and yelling over each other, especially if we were trying to, you know, I was playing referee or something like that. Everyone's pleading their cause. It was, it was impossible to sort out what any one kid was saying when they would get yelling and kind of defending themselves. And they were all speaking English. <laughs> Imagine if they were speaking languages that no one understood, how difficult that would be. And that was what was happening in Corinth. He says, listen, if this is going to be a gift that's brought to the church as a whole, it needs to be one at a time, one at a time, and maybe two or three people. Thirdly, he gives a third criteria that we are, that whatever is spoken must be interpreted. Whatever is spoken in a tongue must be interpreted. You see at the end of verse 27. Presumably, there was someone in their midst who had this gift of interpretation, which was also a miraculous gift, because otherwise, he says, if no one interprets, it would be no benefit to the church. As we learn back in verse 9, he says, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you'll be speaking into the air. There was always to be someone to interpret when someone brought the gift of tongues to the corporate gathering. And then the fourth criteria kind of dovetails off of that. If there is no interpreter, verse 28 says, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. The gift of languages was, was unique. It was distinct in that um, while, it, while it was different from the gift of interpretation, it always was used together with the gift of interpretation. Tongues were not to be used in isolation from the gift of interpretation, and the gift of interpretation really can't be used apart from the gift of tongues. Without someone to give a clear interpretation, Paul says that individual should keep whatever it is they want to say to themselves and pray silently. These, then, these four things are the criteria for how the gift of tongues was to be used. Two or three one at a time, always with interpretation. If there was no interpretation, keep silent. Very simple. And so I would ask you, is, is this how you see the supposed gift of tongues in operation now by those who see it as normative for the church today? 
And I think if we're honest, in most contexts, it's not what we see at all. It's not. The same chaos, the same bedlam, the same lack of intelligibility that captivated the Corinthians, that captivated the Montanists that we learned about back in the beginning of the chapter in the second and third centuries, that's the same chaos that captivates much of the charismatic world today. Rarely is there an attempt to interpret. Rarely are those who claim to speak in tongues in control of their faculties. Rarely are they limited to just two or three individuals. There's an expectation that all would speak in tongues. And so all of that adds to the weight of evidence that these, whatever these gifts are looking like today, they are not the genuine gifts that Paul speaks about here and that they do not have a place in the church today. So those are the guidelines for tongues and interpretation. But he pivots in verses 29 to 31 and gives some guidelines for prophecy, which are very similar. First, only two or three prophets were to speak, verse 29. Remember, a prophet gave new revelation. They were someone that um, spoke for God, but they didn't only give new revelation. Sometimes they just reiterated and reinforced sound doctrine. They were preaching and teaching, so to speak. They proclaimed what had previously been revealed, and so they were reinforcing those things in the church. But it wasn't to be a free-for-all. It wasn't everybody yelling over each other and taking over. No, it was people were, were to wait, and, um, and everything was to be done in an orderly and in a defined way. It was to be harmonious and peaceful. The second criteria for prophecy is that others were to judge what is said. He says, uh, two or three speak and let the others, other people in the church presumably, pass judgment or other prophets perhaps. Those who had this gift of discernment or those who were themselves prophets and had a good working knowledge of the scriptures were to measure what was said to evaluate its truthfulness and its accuracy. Someone who claimed to speak for God in the church gathering was not to be accepted uncritically. They were not to just be um, uh, whatever they said was not to be drunk down without considering what they were saying. Um, this is what John's talking about in 1 John 4.1. He says, Do not believe every spirit, beloved, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many, he says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is especially important when those prophets were giving new revelation or claiming to give new revelation. They, they were the foundation stones, Ephesians 2 verse 20 says, along with the apostles for the church. And so whatever they taught, better be right, because that is what the church was going to build off of. It would be imperative that they spoke truthfully and accurately, and if they didn't, that they were corrected. But we should be discerning in today as well. I mean, I don't think this is the, the principle is that, you know, we certainly do not um, get a pass on this commandment. We need to be discerning. And we have the added advantage of the scriptures in their totality. We have 2,000 years of church history behind us, which is a huge help. And so we are to be vigilant as well to examine what is being taught and to see if these things are so. And we do that with one another in the church as we look, and that's why we have a doctrinal statement as a church. It's why we, um, we hold convictions and we make those convictions clear for everyone to know. Right? 
the doctrinal statement of our church is not my personal doctrinal statement. This is a, these are things that the church has confessed for or literally thousands of years. So no one prophet could just go his own way, say whatever he wanted, do whatever he wanted. There was to be a healthy accountability for all who herald God's prophetic word. A third criteria for prophecy is just like it with the tongues, one at a time. One at a time. Verse 30 says, Let, uh, but if revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silence. So we're not talking over one another. If, if someone was standing up teaching and another prophet had a revelation to share with the church, the one who was teaching was to yield the floor to that other individual. The point is that all was to be done in an organized, peaceful, and a beneficial manner. He says, for you can all prophesy one by one, verse 31, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. By allowing one person to speak, the rest to judge and evaluate what was spoken, and then allowing another person to speak, in this way all will be benefited, all will be exhorted and challenged from, from God's word. So it's not hard to see how the church is built up in that situation. It's not hard to see how the church is benefited in a clear, orderly, and accurate word being proclaimed. So the, all of that kind of encapsulates the theme of proclamation here in verses 26 to 31. But there's another kind of, um, I guess, guideline that's laid out, and that is in the form of a proverb in verses 32 in the beginning of verse 33. So that's kind of our second point in our outline. In verse 32... Paul says, um, you know, because the, the charge would be brought, say, Paul, if, if everything is so structured, if everything is so orderly, uh, are we quenching the Spirit's work? Would that be uh, somehow uh, putting, um, uh, you know, riding the brake, if you will, of the Holy Spirit in the church? And Paul says, no, that's not the case at all. Verse 32, he says, um, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Those who had these true gift, the true gift of languages and had a capacity, he says, they have a capacity to keep silent when they are um, in the church service. So the point is that just as it is with prophecy as with tongues, it was, um, it was not some irresistible urge that they could not control. You know, like if you ever had the hiccups, you can't, when they're bad, you can't not hiccup, right? You just, I mean, you may not be as loud as, but you just can't hold it in. You just, you just it's, it's terrible. I hate the hiccups. <laughs> and that's how some feel about the Holy Spirit. Well, I've got a word of prophecy. I just can't hold it in. No, he says, listen, that's not the case. All three, it's interesting, verse 32, all the nouns in verse 32 are lacking an article in the original language, which has the effect of making it read something like a proverb. In other words, you could translate it, spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Prophecy is a means of divine revelation, a means of exhortation, but it is, for, he says, it is for prophets to control prophetic inspiration. That's the point of that proverb. They can control it. Why is that? Well, the beginning part of verse 33 gives us the reason. He says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. If the prophets 
had no control over their inner person. There was no way you could order a church service. There's no way there could be any kind of harmonious assembly in their midst. But Paul understands that God's character is a backstop against that kind of disorder. God is God, he's the kind of God he is. He is a God of peace. He is a God of order. He ushers in peace and not disorder. He ushers in harmony and not confusion. This is uppermost. I mean, God is called the God of peace in benediction after benediction in the New Testament. Now may the God of peace be with you all. Now may the Lord of peace himself grant you peace in every circumstance and so forth. God is not glorified where there's confusion. He's not honored where there is competition and self-centeredness and self-advertisement. Chaos in the church is proof positive that the spirit is not in control. Where his spirit rules, where the Holy Spirit rules, where heavenly wisdom reigns, there is always peace. James 3, verse 17, the wisdom from above is first pure and what? Peaceable. Peaceable. And this is why the charismania that we see today where people are falling down all over the place or convulsing or yelling over one another and carrying on like their minds have been hacked by some outside force. None of that has anything to do with the Holy Spirit. It can't. God simply does not operate contrary to his own nature. And so we shouldn't forget Paul's words here, this proverb that spirits of prophets are subject under the control of those prophets. They are not out of control. Well, that leads us into a third point in verses 33, the end of verse 33 and down to verse 35. And we'll call that propriety. So we have proclamation, a proverb. That carries over into verses 33 to 35 in what we'll call propriety. The end of verse 33 says this, As in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are, subject themselves, are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. The latter part of verse 33 fits better with 34 and 35 than it does with what comes before it. And I think it's a little confusing in most modern English translations, but it, logically, that's related. What he says in the end of verse 33 logically connects to verse 34, not to God being a God of confusion. Paul is emphasizing the fact that, in this, that this prohibition against women speaking in the church wasn't local, it wasn't geographical, it wasn't a cultural thing, but it was a universal principle. He says, in all the churches of the saints... It embraces tongues, but here he's addressing the issue of prophecy. Women were not then, as they're not today, permitted to preach and teach in the mixed company of both men and women in the corporate worship service. And as we taught through back in chapter 11, verses 1 to 16, this isn't because Paul is some misogynist who hates women and he's out to um, put them in their rightful place, and nor is he letting the cultural pressures of the first century bend and shape his theology, he's simply affirming God's creational order. 
We've talked about this in detail. We're, we're not going to go back through it all. But he states the principle explicitly in a letter later on to Timothy as he's at Ephesus in chapter 2, verses uh, 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 12. He says, Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Paul's argument is grounded then in verses 13 and 14 in not in contemporary cultural standards, but in two historic foundational realities. First, he says in verse 13 of 1 Timothy 2, it's because Adam was created first and then Eve. And secondly, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman. God created us, men and women, with unique roles and unique responsibilities. Men are called to a high calling to lead in love, in Christ-like love, and women are called to follow in love. This is God's good design. Whether that's in vogue in any given time or any particular culture is inconsequential. They're God-given roles that you and I as Christians are called to embrace. It places a high responsibility on us as men to lead in a godly way. And so, but it also is a responsibility of women to follow, whether that's in the home or whether that's in the church. And of course, that following is going to look different in different contexts. But the principle was taught in the Old Testament. It's reaffirmed in the New Testament. And when both godly men and godly women embrace that creational role, there's joy, there's peace, there's um, mutuality that allows both men and women to magnify God more completely than if we rail against God's design. So there is blessing to be found in this. And again, I don't think it's a coincidence, just like in Corinth, that many of the churches today that practice speaking in tongues and and claim gifts of prophecy and miraculous healings, those things are still operative. Those same churches also permit women to engage in speaking ministries or their wives, along with their husbands, are quote-unquote pastors, right? A, A number of these individuals charismatic groups were begun by women and are dominated by women in their leadership responsibilities. Now, it's not to say, and, and all that is not to say that women cannot be highly affected, effective gift and gifted teachers and leaders. They can be, but those gifts are not to be exercised over men in the service of the church. God has ordained his creation order, and we should be uh, reflecting that in his church Just as God's spirit can't be in control where there's chaos and disorder in his church, the spirit can't be in control where women take upon themselves the roles that God has designed for men. He says it is improper. He says it is improper. Uh, Shameful, disgraceful is is the term. It's the same term he uses in chapter 11, verse 6, where he says it it is shameful for a woman to prophesy or to speak with her head uncovered. Or her, excuse me, with her head, yeah, which is, it would be disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off, which would kind of make her look like a man in that day, just as it would uh, in some contexts today. He says, let her cover her head. So this is, again, drawing at this idea of propriety, what is fitting, what is right. 
Now, that said, there are times in informal meetings and Bible studies, our equipping hour time is an example of that, whether, where it's entirely fitting and proper for men and women to share and exchange questions and share insights. Uh, women, of course, are exhorted to teach other women. Titus 1, uh, Titus 2, excuse me, verse 4, they're to teach younger children, for sure, as they keep their homes. But when, children, when, when the church comes together for corporate worship, God's standard is clear the role of leadership and the heralding of God's prophetic word is for godly and qualified men. Anything else is out of order. It lacks propriety. The Corinthians, however, felt like they could go off trail and ignore that biblical pattern. They didn't think it mattered to them. And that's why he says what he says in verse 36. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come only to you? They thought they knew better than the scriptures. That was the issue. And so Paul, with sarcasm here, says, ask whether the word of God started with them or whether they, had, or they, they are the only ones that had received it and no one else, which, of course, they had not. Which is a good, I think, this is just a good reminder for all of us. We cannot fall into the trap of thinking that we alone know what is best as a Christian. We don't. We have to give due attention and deference to the divine word and the collective voice of all the congregations, all the assembly of the saints. We, we cannot go our own way. Cultural priorities will come and go. Cultural pressures will ebb and, and press in, but we cannot deviate from the word of God in that standard. And this leads into the fourth and final point in our outline in verses 37 to 38. We've seen proclamation, a proverb, propriety, and lastly in verses 37 and 38, the apostolic pattern. He says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. This is a bold claim by Paul here. He says everything he has written in this letter, particularly in this section, but I think he means the letter as a whole as well, it is the Lord's command. It's the Lord's command. There's no higher claim he could make on his words. He understood that they were God's words, not his. And not only is this the Lord's command, but anyone who is a prophet, anyone who is filled with the Spirit, he says, will recognize it as such. The Corinthians claimed and wanted to be known as those who were filled with the Spirit, those who walked in the Spirit. The Spirit was what mattered most to them. They weren't lacking in any gift. And so Paul says, let them prove that by receiving, recognizing God's inspired words from my pen when they read it or when they hear it. So the main thrust is clear. Any spiritual person will recognize the voice of God in what Paul says, and ignore it at their own risk. It's not optional. These are not negotiable with Paul. And there's a little wordplay in verse 38. He says, the word of God, he says, it communicates this idea that anyone who turns their back on God's word ought themselves to have the church turn their back on them. They are false prophets. To, re, to reject Paul's words is to reject God's words, 
and makes them illegitimate servants of the triune God. So the point is agreement with and conformity with apostolic teaching is the mark of genuine discipleship, and those who reject that clear prophetic word are themselves to be rejected as teachers and leaders in the church. From a contemporary application standpoint, novelty is not a virtue in the church. Novelty is not a virtue in the church. It may be a, it may be a virtue in the culture where, in our culture says, whatever is newer must be truer, but that is not the case. When God's word speaks, it speaks definitively, and the word of God then swims upstream from the culture. And so we must shun novelty and innovation when it comes to doctrine. Well, Paul concludes and draws all these thoughts to a conclusion, uh, a, 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 a true conclusion, not even a preliminary one, a, a final conclusion in verse 39 and 40. He pulls all the loose threads together. He says, Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Walking in love necessitates desiring the greater gifts. And Paul's made clear that that greater gift that they ought to be preoccupied with isn't tongues and it isn't um, themselves. It's prophetic word communicated clearly, communicated um, uh, or in an orderly manner. He says that will have the greatest impact for the building up of the body of Christ. And that means giving priority to that word in the corporate worship. And while in that day the true gift of languages was in operation and it was never meant to be the end-all and be-all of the corporate gathering, it still had a place, Paul says, albeit a, a muted one, it still had a place in the life of the early church, and Paul was not going to discourage them from exercising the true gift in the proper way. But what was uppermost, and this is true for us today, is that when the church comes together, all things are to be done properly. In other words, in a graceful becoming harmonious way. That's what that term properly implies. And in an orderly manner. So public worship is incredibly important. And everything we do must be done in the Lord's way. We need to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way so that we can enjoy the Lord's blessing on that work. And that isn't necessarily going to look like expansion all the time. It isn't always going to look like um, uh, victory over the enemy. We have to understand that when we do the Lord's work in the Lord's way, sometimes it looks like losing. Sometimes it looks like um, things getting smaller, not bigger. But that's okay because innovation, impropriety, irresponsibility, and incoherence are in no way evidence of the Spirit's work in our midst. We must do all that we do in an orderly, peaceful, harmonious, and um, obedient way at all times. We do the Lord's work. The lesson that we take away from this is we do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. And when that is happening, the Spirit is at work. The church is built up. Christ is magnified. And in the end we will enjoy the fullness of blessing 
that God has for his church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul's instruction that guides us into all the truth. It is the Lord's command, and sometimes the Lord's commands are hard to stomach because they look so different from what we, we, we see around us. Uh, you know, the other seven and a, uh, six and a half days of the week as we go about our, our lives, we, 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 we don't even realize sometimes, like a fish in water, we don't even realize what is going around, what, what surrounds us and how that affects our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, and our attitudes about the Word of God. We pray that we would not be um, quick to run to novelty. We would not be quick to uh, uh, lay down and give up um, when it comes to taking a stand for truth. Lord, we pray that we would be the, church, the kind of church that does your work, the work of making and maturing disciples of Christ who run to win, that we would go about that work. It's not just that we want to see the end goal realized. We do, but we want to do it in the Lord's way that we would enjoy the blessing, the peace of God, um, the power of God in our lives, victory over sin, seeing souls won to Christ and built up and made more and more like the Savior. Lord, help us to do that. Because apart from you, Scripture says we can do nothing. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.